Welcome to the Free Speech Nation podcast with me, Andrew Doyle. On my episode today, I'm delighted to welcome my guest, Nick Buckley. Uh, Nick is the founder of the charity The Mancunian Way, for which he was awarded an MBE. This is a charity that works with disadvantaged youths. In June 2020, he was subject to a cancellation when he wrote an article criticising the Black Lives Matter movement and came under fire as a result. It was a really interesting conversation I had with Nick. We talked about what happened to him, but we also talked about the education system, council culture generally, free speech, uh, and the importance of personal responsibility. I hope you enjoy the podcast. So Nick, thank you very much for joining me today. Um, Perhaps for the people watching or listening who don't know all that much about you, can you just give me a background to how you got to where you did, how you set up your charity, The Mancunian Way? Uh, Where did you come from, basically? So in a nutshell, I was just a kid off a council estate in South Manchester, went to a really poor school. I mean, when I say poor, I mean failing school. Mm-hmm. One of my teachers got stabbed 42 times in the chest, another got sexually assaulted. It was a rough school. It got closed down the year after I left. That's how bad it was. Um, no father at home. Um, I drifted all the way through my teens and my twenties, um, not knowing what I was going to do. And then, like most things in life, you, an opportunity comes along that you take. Um, and I started working for a local council, working with young people, trying to stop them getting involved in crime. And I had a flair for it. And the reason why is because I was that kid on that street corner causing problems. Yes. So when I was talking to kids and parents, I was saying, that's an excuse. Don't, don't tell me that rubbish because I know you're lying because that's exactly what I would have said when I was your age, sat in this office as well. Yeah. Um, and I excelled at that. And then... In 2011, the big cuts came to all the councils across the country because austerity just kicked in. Manchester lost something like 50% of its budget, had big choices to make. And my job and my team's job all went. And I decided to take the opportunity of taking voluntary redundancy. And I decided I was going to plough it into my own charity and carry on the work I'd been doing and pioneering for a decade, but do it better because there'd be no red tape by the council. Can you explain to people what the Mancunian Way's core idea was? What, what are the main values that you're attempting to achieve? Yeah, so Mancunian Way is started off as a young person's charity, working on the streets with the kids who we suspected were causing an issue or getting involved in low-level crime. And the philosophy behind it is personal responsibility. Yeah. And what we do is we don't take excuses and rubbish off young people about how this country is unfair, how this country is one of the worst countries in the world. And we're like, are you joking? You live in one of the best countries ever in the world. And if you can't make it here, it means you can't make it anywhere. And the reason why you can't make it here is because, we give them a list, you're lazy. Your your expectations are too high for a 17-year-old. You don't know how to read and write. You don't know what working entails. You're expecting someone to do all the hard work for you. And we have some real frank conversations with these young people and try to get them onto the path of personal responsibility. So how does that go down? Because, I mean, I, I used to be a teacher, I've worked with kids, and I used to be a child myself, so I know that young people don't tend to respond well when you tell them that something is their fault. Um, yeah. Do you find, though, that this has been... Well, it must have been an effective strategy for you. How is it that you've made that work where others can't? It's because I employ the best staff. So I employ staff who have the most fantastic engagement skills you'll ever see. They can walk up to a group of young boys in a park at 10 o'clock on a Friday night in the rain in a pitch black park and have them laughing in 30 seconds. That's a skill you can't teach. 
So we go onto the streets, all this work is done on the streets. Yeah. We get on the streets, we start introducing ourselves, we're chatting, we don't stay too long the first couple of times you're meeting because you freak them out, they think you're undercover police. Right. But over time you build up relationships and because you're on their turf, in their space, and they can walk away at any time they want to, then that fosters respect. So they don't want to listen to you. It's like, I'm just to walk away, which is absolutely fine. And you find the ones who stay are the ones who, who know there's something better they just don't know where it is, how to see it, and how to grasp it. So you've got this ethos of personal responsibility, um, which, as I say, I, I, I find it incredible that you can convince children and young people, particularly those who are offenders, uh, to start accepting. And what, what, what is the success rate of that strategy? You know, I mean, how many... I mean, is that a fair question? Absolutely. Can it be quantified, yeah, even? The first thing I need to say is we have more failures than successes. Okay. So that's just being purely honest, because we're not miracle workers. Yeah. But the ones we do help not only changes their lives and their family lives, it also changes the neighbourhoods where they live. Right. Because these individuals now are not committing crime, are not engaged in antisocial behaviour. They've got a better chance now of raising their future children sure. in a more positive manner. So we're not changing the whole city we're working overnight, waving a magic wand. It's we're chipping away all the time. And sometimes the success might be we haven't changed their life, but now they know they're not going to be selling cannabis because they know they're going to get caught and, then, and they know the consequences of that. So it depends how you judge success. Yeah. We're, not, we're not changing these young people into brain surgeons. We're trying to give them the help and advice and the guidance they should have got at home but haven't, so therefore they're making poor choices. We want them to make positive, informed choices. Where they go with that is down to them as individuals, but we need to give them some of the back catalogue of yeah. what they've missed at home. So the counter-argument to that, if I can just put it to you, is the idea that, you know, you, as you say, this is one of the most uh, incredible societies to live in in the world, in the history of the world, you know, we have a lot of opportunities here. But within this society, people are advantaged or disadvantaged at different levels. People can come from absolute penury and have nothing and, 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 and no role models, yep. uh, issues within the family, uh, drug addiction, etc. What would you say to someone who presents that argument to you and says, look, sometimes people are products of their circumstances and sometimes it's not their fault that they've ended up in this situation? That's how we start the conversations. We start the conversation by saying, life's not fair. And it really isn't fair. You can achieve and you can get success, but let's be honest, you're starting two miles before you even get to the starting line yeah. because you live in this environment, because your dad is you know, in jail and because your mum is a heroin addict. You're starting further behind, but that doesn't mean you can't finish the race. It just means it's gonna take, take you longer. And we're here to help you with that journey. So, so is part of the battle then overcoming the inherent resentment that a lot of people will have about their circumstances? It's never resentment, it's apathy. Okay. We rarely meet a young person who hates his life because they don't know any other life, so it's their life. Yeah. I grew up in proper poverty. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't resent it because it was just my life at the time. It's the apathy. It's the, well, this is what we do here. Mm. This, is, this is what my family, family does. This is, this is basically our culture. So how did you individually come around to the idea of personal responsibility? Because as you said yourself, you've come from a similar background, if not worse. So, but you've come out the other end thinking that actually it is about the decisions that we make. I did, and I wasted probably the most valuable 15 years of my life. I wasted all my late teens and all my 20s because 
I wouldn't take personal responsibility. I was but blaming waiting. others, you mean? Not so much blaming others. I was waiting for someone to knock on my door and offer me the life I deserved. Yeah. Didn't resent anybody. Didn't blame anybody. But I didn't... I hadn't connected that no one's going to knock on my door and give me the life I think I deserve. It was only when I realised that. And how I came to that conclusion was through travelling. Um, I've backpacked around the world on my own several times. I've been to countries most people can't even find on a map. And by going to those countries, months and months on end, and seeing how other people live, and you speak to them, and they're happy. And I'm thinking... They haven't got anything. But the father tells me, today's been a good day. And you go, why? I've managed to work today and earn enough money to buy food for everybody. And we've got some left over for the morning. And he's going, it's been a good day. And I'm there going, how dare me? How dare me think my life isn't great? When I've never, ever been hungry. And it was those encounters of people who had a better quality of life than me because they were happy. And what I realised was they were happy because they had family mm. who they loved and they had family who they, want, who they took responsibility for. And that's when I started connecting the dots going, I'm only looking out for myself and it's lonely. And that's when I decided one day, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start working, proper working, and I'm going to see where this takes me. And within weeks, I noticed my life was already better. People would say, though, wouldn't they, that this is a very conservative idea, this focus on the family, this focus on community, uh, and that people would even smear it as a kind of right-wing idea. And yet, when, I, when I've talked to people from you know, the left, uh, they come to this same conclusion as well. So I don't, I'm not so sure it is. Where do you stand on that politically? Well, the guy I just referenced then was a father living on the street in a hut in Delhi. He wasn't a conservative or a right-winger. Mm. He was fighting every day to survive. Yeah. So this isn't left or right. This, this is human nature. So you've got this charity, and, it, and it's obviously going well because you're awarded an MBE. Uh, your work is recognised. Uh, you're having success. I mean, you pointed out that obviously a lot of the time it won't work, but you are having great success with yep. it. Of course, six months later, after the MBE is awarded, this thing happens to you. Now, I'm not sure how much people will know yeah. what happened to you, uh, but you wrote an article which caused a stir. Would you like to give us your version of the story? Yeah. Uh, as though, as, I mean, I do know the story, yeah. but as though I don't know the story. So COVID had happened, so we're all in lockdown. I'm probably working half the hours I normally would work. I'm watching a lot of YouTube, I'm reading a lot of stuff, um, and I start writing some, some blogs yeah. um, on things I'm interested in, but also are connected to social issues in the country. Because I think that, that's where I have some knowledge and experience. Yes. We had the Black Lives Matter incident, and then we had a demonstration in London that turned violent. Yeah. It was mostly peaceful, as the BBC said, but there was violence there. And I thought, oh, Black Lives Matter. I've sort of heard of it, but I'm not sure what it's about. So I Googled Black Lives Matter, went on their website, read what they had to say about their own organisation. So not a conspiracy website, yeah. but their website. Yeah. And thought... I don't like the sound of any of this. Yeah. Defund the police, overthrow capitalism. The best one was disrupt the, the Western nuclear family. Yes. And I looked at that and went, they're all English words, and I know what those words mean independently, but I don't know what it means when you put all them together, disrupt the Western nuclear family. And I came to the conclusion, it means we need to get rid of more men out of the family. And I thought, 
That's the biggest problem we've got in our country is a lack of fathers at home and a lack of fathers involved with their children's lives. So I wrote an article, 600, 700 words. The first half was about, this is what I discovered on their website. Mm -hmm. And the second half was, and if we wanted to improve the lives of black people in the UK, only the UK, yeah. these are my suggestions. So I listed some things, let's tackle knife crime, tackle female genital mutilation. Mm -hmm. And then they ended with, and how about we start building more houses? Because that, that will improve all our kids' lives if we yeah. build some houses for them. It was on LinkedIn for a couple, I didn't put it on Twitter because Twitter's mental. Yeah. So I put it on LinkedIn. Because uh, you can have, sometimes have a decent conversation on there. Yeah. Um, there was some pushback. Some people saying you've misunderstood and this and that. But it was all polite and quite professional. But I had quite a few emails and phone calls off people saying, Nick, I've seen your LinkedIn article, I like it. Didn't know any of that. But I, I don't want to say any of this online. Um, yes. That's a bit strange, I was thinking. I was very naive. I thought I was a free <laughs> person living in a free country with freedom of speech. And they said, I don't want to say this online. And I thought... Oh, I just sort of ignored it. And then someone cut and pasted the article off LinkedIn into Twitter. And then within days, it had gone mental. So this was, I mean, I'm looking back now at the Beginning time. Beginning of June. I mean, it, it, there was a kind of moment at, at that time where the conversation about this subject was very, very difficult. And, you know, I remember I wrote an article about Black Lives Matter at the time, trying to tease out some of these these points and saying we need a conversation about it but I couldn't get it done within I had to, it was a long article it ended up being a few thousand words because I it was so tricky to yeah, write yeah. about without treading on people's sensitivities and clearly you were writing at that time but I did what you did is I looked at the website mm. and and uh, it was incredible to me that journalists generally hadn't gone to their website to see what the values of the organization were because there were legitimate things to criticize there and that wasn't going on because any kind of criticism was deemed as racist effectively yep. And this is what you were accused of at, at this time, in spite of the fact that a lot of your work has been with people of different ethnicities and this kind of yeah. thing, you know. So what happened next? Once you, the accusations started coming in, presumably through Twitter, yep. am I right? Yeah. So accusations started on Twitter, bit of a storm on there, and I saw what was going on. I was like, oh, didn't expect any of that. Yeah. Keep your mouth shut, and hopefully it'll go away. And that was, that was my initial response. Don't engage with any of them. Yeah. Just keep your mouth shut, it'll go away. Um, and then somebody then two days later set up a petition to have me fired from the charity I founded. Yeah. Um, and then we had a volunteer at the charity, only been with us a couple of months, um, and they resigned and wrote to the board and accused me basically being a Nazi. Okay. Um, did they actually use the word? Yes, they did, I, in a roundabout way. Okay. There was a reference to Nazis and that, I don't think they actually said the word Nick is a Nazi, yeah. but they said something like, yeah. I understand what you mean. They yeah. referenced it yeah. in connection with me. Okay, yes, yeah. which can be just as damning. Which is, which is exactly what they meant. Yeah. Um, the board then panicked. Uh, there was four people on the board who I appointed. Uh, three of them were friends, personal friends. One I'd known for 15 years. Um, and they emailed me two days later with one line email. You're terminated immediately. And so these are people you know, people you've worked with, people you're even friends with. Yep. And just the accusation of racism at this time in this febrile climate, that was sufficient for them to deem it acceptable to, to boot you out of the charity that you founded. Yep. So can you talk us through how that must have felt? I can't really imagine this. So can you, and I don't know how easy it is to recreate, yep. but what was your reaction at the time? Shock. So I read the email 
and knew that they had the authority to sack me. So there was no debate. They had the authority to do that because they're the board. Yeah. Um, and then it was, what the hell have you done? What is your big mouth gotten you into now that you cannot get out? So your instinct was to blame yourself, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I've crossed a line here somewhere. I don't know where this line is. I don't know what I've done yet. But I then spent a whole week... Um, I was a broken man trying to figure out what I'd done wrong, trying to figure out what, what can I do. Um, my job's gone. My reputation's now in tatters. Um, I'm not speaking to anybody. The biggest feeling was embarrassment. Mm. I felt I, I turned myself into a fool. Did you have any opportunity to talk to the board no. about it? No. Did you try or did they just not want... Well, once they sat me, I, I, there was no point trying. Okay. Uh, again, this is during lockdown. Yeah. So if there was no lockdown, this, there wouldn't have been an email. It would have been a meeting. Yeah. There would have been discussion, face-to-face yeah, sure. discussions. I blame a lot of this on the COVID lockdown, why everybody went a bit mental. Yeah. Um, so that was the first week. I was, I was a beaten man. And then by the end of the beginning of the second week, I started hearing a little voice inside saying to me what I've said to tens of thousands of young people, which was basically, what are you doing? Get up, brush yourself down and carry on. Life's unfair, as I keep saying to kids. Life's unfair. Walk forward. Anything's better than feeling sorry for yourself. Mm. So then I went to bed that night. Um, didn't sleep, wasn't sleeping much anyway. Woke up next morning with a whole different outlook. It was, right, I have a problem. Yeah. Problems are there to be solved. What am I going to do to solve this problem? And how do you even begin uh, to address that kind of problem? Because it's not something that you'd experienced before. Yeah. Uh, this is, I suppose, what we now call cancel culture, which is where someone doesn't just criticise something you've said, they go after your livelihood. Yeah and your reputation. And that's the big distinction that I think a lot of the people who deny cancel culture don't understand. Mm. We're not talking about holding someone to account or questioning them or criticizing them, challenging yep. them. We're talking about systematically ruining them, yep. uh, you know, denouncing them, all of that. So you hadn't, uh, this isn't something you'd experienced before. No. You did, I don't know, did you know people who'd gone through anything no. like this? So then how do you even begin to push back? Um, well, for me, running a charity, creating projects, and the work I did for the council, what I'm good at is strategy mm. and designing projects, looking at problems and then picking them apart. How do we fix this problem bit by bit? Yeah. You can't fix a huge problem. You've got to break it up into pieces. And that's, I sat down with a pen and paper and went, right, what can I do? Yeah. And my first, the only thing to begin with, was, I need to save my reputation. I didn't think I got my charity back, but I thought if I don't save my reputation, my life's over. I can't set anything else up. I, I, can't, I can't spend the rest of my life being known as Nick the Nazi. Yeah. There's no future in that. So I looked at what the problems were, what I could um, influence, what I couldn't. At no point tackling things you can't influence. Yeah, yeah. And I realised straight away, um, ignore social media because you, you can't change these idiots. Yeah, yeah. Um, but the board had already proven to me that they're weak. And if they can fold by strangers on Facebook mm. because of a little bit of pressure. Hmm, you don't like pressure. I'll flip that. Yeah. So now I'll put pressure on you. So then I did an interview with the mail on Sunday. 
that was a full-page interview that got international attention. I had thousands of messages when that hit the paper, hit the stand. Um, I joined a free speech union. I kept doing interviews, and every time I did an interview, they then contacted the board because they wanted to hear their side of the story. They didn't want to speak to anybody. When they spoke to people, they said the wrong thing, which they had a backlash on social media against them. Somebody set a petition up to have me reinstated. That got 18,000 signatures compared to 4,500 of the original um, petition. So there was a lot of support out there. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I, I just piled loads and loads of pressure onto the board. And, you know, you mentioned the Free Speech Union there, and it's, it's interesting to me, because when that was set up, when Toby Young set that up, uh, a lot of people were very cynical, particularly people in the media who tried to politicise this. Uh, but again and again, I see all these success stories mm. from the Free Speech Union. So to what extent did they help you and support you at that time? They were crucial. They were crucial in several ways. The first way was I had someone to talk to. Mm. It's very, very lonely going through this. Yeah. You can't talk to your family and friends because they don't understand any of it. And again, because I was embarrassed and blaming myself, I don't want to put pressure and stress on my family and friends. And I've got to deal with this myself. So having people there I could speak to really helped. Um, And then they got a pro bono solicitor involved in my case, which at that time I only had a little bit of savings, but I was unemployed. I'm thinking... I might not get a job for a year. Yeah. So the bit of savings I've got, I'm going to need for food. I can't waste that on 10, 20, 30 grand of legal fees. Like I don't, how much are legal fees? I don't know. So they got me pro bono slitter involved. He looked at the case, looked at my contracts, looked at everything and said, click or case, breach a contract. Yeah. He said, there's no argument here, breach a contract. Um, so we wrote to the board and we said, or we're going to we, we're going to sue you uh, for breach of contract unless on mass you all resign um, and we'll appoint a new board and that's exactly what we did. It took them eighteen hours to resign. Eighteen hours after they ruined, tried to ruin my life, ruined our friendships, all on the pretense of we're protecting the charity. When I flipped the tables and they were under scrutiny and they had something to lose. It took them 18 hours to go, we're walking away. And then you appointed a new board. Officially, they appointed a new board I approved of, because there's there's rules and regulations you've got to follow up, but we appointed a new board. But you're back with the charity. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's an amazing story, really. From beginning to end, five weeks. Do you you have any contact with the the former friends who were on that board? No, I'm hoping one day they reach out and they explain themselves. Because it would be interesting to know, wouldn't it, their thought process behind this? Yeah. And that's my suspicion is fear and intimidation. Yeah. They're, they're worried about, uh, you know, the power of social media. Yeah. And I think a lot of people, their instinct is just to simply capitulate, but it's not the moral thing to do. If we don't throw Nick to the wolves, those wolves may then come for us. Yeah, yeah. They want a blood sacrifice, better Nick's blood than my blood. That's what it seems like, isn't it? Cowardice. You know? I, I put it all down to cowardice. Yeah, yeah. The idea of trying to restore those kind of friendships is almost seems impossible these days. I don't think it could be restored, but I, I, think, I think I deserve an explanation at some point in the future. And then what do you say to people who, you know, I have this conversation all the time where people say cancel culture isn't real. It just simply isn't real. I mean, it's just such an obviously false statement. I, don't, I, I often struggle actually <laughs> to, to get beyond other than listing example after example after example. And if people are confused about that, they're all online. You know, you can yep. find this stuff. I think um, people assume it's just about attacks on powerful celebrities. Mm. 
But cancel culture affects predominantly normal working people because those are the people who can't fight back, who can't push back yep. against it. Have you come across, I mean, given what's happened to you, it would be quite hard to look you in the eye and say cancel culture doesn't exist. But have people tried to say that to you? Or argue that? They're having some of the debates I've done at universities, yeah. Um, you know, the opposite is it's not cancel culture, it is holding people to account culture. Right. Like, well, I'm, I'm quite happy to be held accountable. Yeah. And the article I wrote, no one ever criticised any point in my blog. So it wasn't a particularly contentious... It, 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 was, it was their website, so you couldn't point some out and say, that's racist, but I want to reduce knife crime. Well, that's not racist. That's like, well, let's save people's lives. Yeah. The argument I got against me for that was, how dare you, writing while white, how dare you as a white man comment on a black issue? That really was the accusation against me. So a lot of this really is about identity politics. Identity, yeah. And, I mean, where do you think this has come from? You know, it's now a dominant force, I think. Yeah. I think it's that combination of cancel culture and identity politics, yeah. uh, a mistrust of free speech. These kind of things which tend to all go in tandem, you know, if one yeah. believes in one, they believe in the other. Where, where do you feel it, it's come from and how do we push back against this? I think it started, from what I can see, probably the 60s, started with feminism. Um, gr females grouped themselves together as an identity that we're women, we're feminists, we want things that are good for us. Even though at that point in the 60s they had some valid points. But I think it started there and it morphed. Every generation, it morphed. So do you see it as, you know, well-meaning civil rights movements from the 1960s where we're actually, arguably, I mean, I would say, surely identity politics is a, a positive force at that point because you're, you're in an oppressed class and therefore you do need to band together. And, but using the same strategy now in a culture and society which has completely different problems... Mm. Am I right in thinking that that's what maybe causes the problem? It's become a business. It really has become a business. So we have some of these groups, you know, from the 60s, 70s, 80s. Stonewall's a good one. Yeah. Stonewall should have folded once there was gay marriage. Right. There was no more fights to have for the gay community. They should have said, job done, we're going to close down, and that's the end of it. But you accept, though, for instance, like you talk about feminism and Stonewall, there is still misogyny, there is still homophobia, there is still racism. And of course, Black Lives Matter would say that that's their priority. As I said at the beginning, life's unfair. But you, but you do believe that we should tackle those things? Yes, everything needs tackling, but we're at a stage now where when we were looking at the civil rights in America, yeah. those people didn't have access to the political system to make the change they wanted. They were arguing to get political change. We're not arguing that now. What we're arguing now is we're looking at niche issues and we're saying we're going to fight for this niche issue. What we need to be doing is improving the lives of everybody. So let's look at Black Lives Matter in the UK. Yeah. Um, and they're like, poverty over affects the black population in the UK. There's reasons for that. Immigration, um, you know, immigrants who come over are normally poor people who come over. Yeah. You don't, you don't normally get rich white people emigrating to the UK. So that's true. But if we tackled poverty, it raises everybody. It raises brown people, black people and white people out of poverty. Yeah. But we've got to a stage where all we care about is what affects me. It's become very niche, but also very selfish. And we've become a very selfish people. 
So, but, but do you take the point, though, that Black Lives Matter would also say that it's not just about poverty, it's also about systemic racism, it's about the idea that, that uh, uh, racism permeates all aspects of society. What would you say to that claim? Um, I know that's what they'd say, mm. but they're wrong. The institutional racism is a ghost. It's ghost-hunting. I can't prove there's ghosts in this room. Yeah. You've just got to believe me that there's ghosts because I can feel it. And this is the, this, what you're talking about here, I suppose. We're getting into this emphasis on lived experience, mm. which seems to be a, a central tenet of all these various offshoots of, of, of this movement. Um, and, of course, as you say, it's not something that can be disproven. If someone says that I just feel it exists, yeah. then maybe it, it doesn't exist. So, but we've had this before. So we look at you know, people who believe in ghosts, people who see the Virgin Mary in a cavern or on a golf course, people who see Elvis. The... I don't, know, I don't know how we explain this psychologically, but this is a new phenomenon. People going, because I, because I believe it, it must be true. Or indeed, because I'm disadvantaged in certain ways, uh, it must be because there's a problem with the whole of society. And that, okay, and I go, that, that's a gold-plated excuse. So it's not down to me. Mm-hmm. It's not down to my work ethic. It's not down to my personal responsibilities because I'm being held back by this invisible structure. So... I feel better about myself now because it's not me being lazy or stupid or not hardworking or not taking opportunities. It's, it's this ghosty thing here that's holding me back. It makes people feel better that it's not them. So is it, is it not possible, though, to, to believe in both? Is it not possible to say, look, there might be some uh, elements of the system or elements of, say, my background which have disadvantaged me, and these are things that we can change and can improve, but at the same time encourage people to foster a, a personal responsibility? Could we not do both of those things together? And I think that's what we've always tried to do. I'm not saying for one moment we're all born equal. I say to young people all the time, you, you could be born two miles before you get to the starting line because of your background, yeah. but being two miles behind the starting line and then going, well, it's not even worth entering the race because look where I'm starting. And the answer is... You, you need to join the race. You need to you need to join life and do what you can do. Life's not fair. Maybe you won't even get much past the starting line, but do you know what? You'll learn from that, and your kids will. So, how do you feel about the idea that you know that we do have to address poverty, and that we do have to try and make opportunities more equal for people as a as a general as a rule in society? It depends what you mean, as in opportunities, um, equal opportunities. Yeah. yeah. So. So there is equal opportunities. There is disadvantages to people, regardless of colour, sex, gender. Of course there's disadvantages. We all start at different places depending on what race we're going to run. And we run many races in life. It isn't just a career race. There's all sorts of lives we run. And we do need to look at where people are starting and we do need to tackle poverty. Now, when I say tackle poverty... People think that's all about money. In our country now, it's got hardly anything to do with money. It's to do with a mindset. It's to do with education. It's it's trying to educate young people to want better for themselves. Aspiration, drive, confidence, self-esteem. You cannot buy yourself out of poverty. You have to educate yourself out of poverty. And every time we talk about this in society, it's all about how much more money is the government going to throw at us. Believe me, in these communities where we work, it's not about money. It's about a lack of dreams, a lack of aspirations. You have parents who 
not, I'm not really blaming the parents. That's how they were raised. Yeah, yeah. When, you, when you're raised in a family where we have no aspiration for you and no dreams for you, well, we wonder why the child grows up with no aspiration, no dreams. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. I mean, it must be very difficult to ha- have those conversations with these people. And, you know, I, it's, it's easier than you think because children, young people are not stupid. Once you unpick this with them in conversations over several weeks, over several months, yeah. a bit at a time, because, you know, they're socialising, and you give them different scenarios and you have a laugh and a joke with them. Yeah, that was my mistake, wasn't it? Yes, it was. That was your mistake. And what do you think about that? Yeah, well, that's unfair because of these reasons. Well, you're right because of those reasons. It's unfair. But you crying about it and whinging about it doesn't change that situation, does it? So it's quite interesting to me that all of these experiences you've had with the Mancunian Way and your charity work seem to have been then applied to what happened to yourself later on with the the cancel culture thing. I mean, it would have been, I suppose, I mean, you must at some point have thought, and probably do, that you're the victim of this, right? Of Of what has happened. No, I never thought I was a victim, and I don't now, because it all started with what I wrote. So it was no one else's fault. I put my thoughts out there. Yeah. And if you have to take it on the chin. So no, I, I never classed myself as a victim. So it was just about finding a way through this within the circumstances that you had created, I yeah. suppose. But you must see that, the, <laughs> how can I put this? It was unjust. That what happened Again, to you was as I unjust. say to kids, life's unfair. Okay. But I just, you know, I just find it difficult to, to, I mean, if that had happened to me, I think I would be so sort of um, obsessed with the, 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 the sense of injustice, the fact that people have lied about me, the fact, the fact that people have attempted to smear my reputation. And, um, and I can see what you're saying. You're saying that basically that might be true, but it's not helpful. There's no utility it in, in wallowing in the victimhood element. Exactly. That, that actually you have to do something productive. You have to do, yeah. you know. And is that why, because you've now written this book about this process, because I think this will be very helpful. I've just described how I can't really fathom what it must be like to be cancelled, okay? Because it hasn't happened to me. Um, But more and more, it is happening to people. And you all know that Helen Pluckrose has set up this group, Counterweight, to help people in that kind of situation, people who are having their livelihoods threatened, they're they're getting this stuff at work. Um, And the Free Speech Union, of course, is doing incredible work along these lines. Is your book intended to, well, how can I put it, act as a guide to navigate your way through this unknown terrain? Or is it something more than that? It's more than that, because I'm not an academic. So the book really, the book's called Lessons in Courage. Um, And it's out next month. Great. Um, The first chapter really is about what happened to me. So, So people can put it in context. This is what happened to me. And then the other nine chapters is all about different lessons. So people keep asking to me, ask me all the time, how, how did you fight back? How did you win? Why is your case special? Yeah, why did you, how did you emerge, in other yeah. words, from this? Because a lot of people, I think, would have... I know you're talking about how you mustn't focus on victimhood, mm. but I think a lot of people would have done so, yeah. and, and not necessarily through choice. I think some people just have that constitution. That's just the way that they well, react. I collapsed for the first week. It's a natural reaction when something that huge happens to you Mm. so the book really is about going through my life different experiences in my life and the lesson i learned from that yeah so when we talk about feeling like a victim Mm. so i give several examples where if i wanted i could claim i was a victim of racial discrimination so i can talk about how 
five black lads when I was a child. When I was 11, they were 15. These five black lads beat me to a pulp while they were laughing and joking. I could claim race discrimination on that. It wasn't true. I went to a different school. If I'd have been a black boy, they probably would beat the crap out of him as well because he went to an opposite school. Right. Um, I got, I've got 19 stitches in my head where six or eight Asian men attacked me with iron bars because of an argument. Wrong place, wrong time. They weren't going out looking for a white man to beat up, mm. but I could claim race discrimination there. I got held up at gunpoint by two black men and I worked in the row of shops. I was the only white person working in this row of shops. Why did they pick on the only white man? Well, the answer is all the other shops were run by the owners. You try getting money off an owner. Yeah. They'll die for that. I worked in the shop. I handed it over, not my money. So it made perfect sense why they would rob the shop I worked in. Yeah, yeah. So when you have this lens of victimhood, you're a victim. So I talk about how these things have happened to me and I've, and I've never classed myself as a victim because there's always a logical explanation. But you do accept that some people can be victims of things. Of course, absolutely. You know, yeah. Absolutely. It, 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 I suppose your point is that it, it's just not helpful to focus on that. If that's your first go-to response, yeah. then everything's racist. Right. You chop up in the street, well, that, the council... That's because the council didn't fill that hole because this area's got more black people and they don't care if black people trip up. But what you're describing is the kind of ideas that are now being inculcated in yes. schools. The idea that, you know, we must see uh, wh white people as the oppressive class and people of colour as the oppressed class yep. all the time and to see each other in that way. And I think that, that is particularly dangerous when it comes to children. It's really, really unhelpful. I mean, we almost got to a point where people really didn't see colour anymore now. It really wasn't an issue. You look at all the government questionnaires and studies about would you mind if your daughter married somebody of a different race? You know, it, it, compared to 20, 30 years ago. Yeah, it's you know, massive it's, difference. It's massive it? now. Yeah. Yeah. And we're, we're almost there. And all of a sudden, somebody decided, mm, if we get there, then I've got nothing to moan about anymore. Or my project won't be needed. And so if, if I'm earning 20, 30, 40, 50 grand a year because I'm running this race relations project, if suddenly we declare we haven't got a race relations problem anymore, I'm out of business. Yeah. And a lot of it now is all about people's pensions and people on the gravy train of looking for conflict so they can say, and I'm the person who can solve it if you pay me. People would say to you, mm -hmm. well, that means that you're saying this as someone who has never experienced racism. Uh, you have white privilege. Um, uh, so how could you speak for someone? Because you, you do accept, don't you, that uh, my ethnic minority people will face racist incidents in a white majority society. That does happen. I've got to a stage now in life, in this country, where if you say you are suffering from racism, it, it, it could be true, but it's so rare. It's like elbow cancer. I'm sure somewhere, somewhere in the country, some people have got elbow cancer. But it's not worth talking about. It's not worth discussing because it really is so limited. We, we, we should put our attention on breast cancer and other types of cancer. When people say they're racially discriminated against now, what they mean is someone said a hurty word. It's important to distinguish this, isn't it? So, but to take the analogy you've just given, if someone does have elbow cancer, that should still be treated. Absolutely. So, you know, when, when there are racist incidents, which there are, hmm? those should be tackled, surely. Absolutely. But you're saying that there is, that a lot of the things that are now perceived as racist... And so the perception of the problem and the actual problem right. do not match. So I think people would say to that, but it sounds like you're saying racism isn't a thing or that you're denigrating 
the idea of tackling racism. Uh, we should tackle all problems and in that, society. And that's sort of the criticism that came to you when you wrote that article, isn't it? Is that you, because you're criticising this group that stands against racism or, or purports to, yep. you must therefore support racism, which yep. is a kind of uh, binary thinking here. It's, it's an unwillingness to have the discussion, isn't it? Do you, do you address any of this in your book? Because the reason I ask is because it's about courage. And one of the questions I get a lot from people is about, you know, I, wanna, I want to take a stand, I want to be more vocal about this problem, yep. but if I do, I'll end up like you. Yep. <laughs> you know, so yep. what, what do you say to that? I mean, that's a real concern. Yeah. Well, one of the, I think it's chapter nine in my book. Um, I sound like Jordan Peterson now. Yeah. Chapter nine in my book. You've got your 10 um, rules for life. <laughs> These are 12 rules for life. <laughs> yeah, in chapter nine, I have 12 rules of how to develop courage. Yeah. Um, it's like half a page okay. per one. And I wrote chapter nine because when I was writing the book, I was putting stuff on Twitter and Facebook. This is what I'm doing. And a lady contacted me and said, oh, I'm looking forward to your book. I'll read it. I'll buy it. Yeah. Um, are you doing a chapter on how we can develop courage? Because there's no point telling everybody about what you did and your life experience and how you had these skills yeah. if you're not leaving people with what they need to develop because they've not had your life. Yes. And I thought, that's an excellent point. So I did a chapter about that. None of this is about you trying to be Superman. It's the first rule is use the word no. No is the most powerful word we have in our arsenal against this. You know, um, we're doing um, white privilege training today. Yeah. Do you want to come along? No. Don't explain yourself. Because you don't have to explain yourself to anybody. The answer is no. So let me, let me just... Uh, explore that a little further um, because there is a reality isn't there I mean we can talk about like the importance of courage and the importance yep. of saying no when you're asked to do something that you don't believe in yep. for whatever reason but what about the practical question you do understand that it is possible that when people are resistant at work yep. against this this movement this trend and yep. it is a trend and it is going in that way it does jeopardize their careers yep. it does mean that the next time someone's about to be promoted, it's going to be that person rather than that person because they caused a bit of a fuss when we had the unconscious bias training. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. So that is a real concern that people have. And a lot of people can't afford <laughs> to lose their, their jobs. I so do talk it, about that. Okay. So I do say to people, what we don't need is martyrs. Okay. So I, don't okay. want, I, don't, I don't want people losing their job because they won't attend the white privilege training yeah. session. So don't lose your job over it. If they ask you, do you want to go? The answer is no. If you're then told... It's now compulsory. Well, then you have to go. Don't lose your job over it. But if what you want is a risk-free fight back, yeah. you're not having one. Because you're not fighting back if you're taking no risk whatsoever. So you saying no to initially is you fighting back. Pick the, pick the little battles you want to well, fight. Well, that's what I was going to suggest. I think being strategic is yes. important. And yet, at the same time, I think one person within an organisation, even just registering an objection... That can have an incredible knock-on effect because, for a start, a lot of other people are probably thinking yes. the same thing. You know, that's exactly what I discuss. That you saying no and then being forced to do it then gives the two people next year a bit of coverage, as in, oh, I'm not the only one thinking this is wrong because yeah. he said he didn't want to go. We're still going to have to go and do it because it's now compulsory. But mm, I've got a bit, I've got a bit more coverage now, knowing I'm not the only one here. And then you might take that into your personal life, in which case you might then you know, retweet something on Twitter that you wouldn't have done six months before because yes. I agree with that. It's not offensive, but I agree with that. What we need to do is we need to start helping the silent majority stop being so silent. Mm. They all need to do their little bit 
all, this, all these little bits will add up and there'll be a tidal wave of support. But if you're just sitting back, waiting for other people to solve these problems for you, then you're part of the problem. Hence why this book really is about how to spot cowardice in yourself. Once you spot it in yourself, you can do something about it. But if you, if you can't spot it, you're then more likely to engage in, in cowardice. Doesn't mean you're a coward, but you're engaging in cowardice. But of course, some people are more predisposed to courage than others. You know, it doesn't come naturally to, to Again, some people. Again, a lot of things in the book is not about courage. It's about avoiding cowardice. There's a big difference. Okay. So being courageous. So I wasn't courageous writing that article. I was foolish because if you just said to me, this, this, is, this is what's going to happen to you, Nick, would I press send on my computer? I don't think I would have done. What about today, though? Today, I'd, I'd do it right now. Yeah. Uh, but I, want, I probably wouldn't have done it at the time because it's changing my whole life. So courage is doing something knowing there's going to be a big impact on you. Yes. That's courageous. Avoiding cowardice means I'm not going to watch that person get bullied and do nothing and go home and ignore it. That's cowardice. So I want to ask you a bit about freedom of speech because I think a lot of what you're describing comes out of a, a reluctance to discuss. You, you posted this article and uh, people didn't come back to you and say, look, I disagree with it, I've got reservations with this, can we have a discussion about this? They sought to eliminate your voice effectively, didn't they? Um, do you think this is a growing problem? How can we uh, restore the idea of it's okay to disagree? That's, that's what I'm getting at, really. I think that's in English-British tradition that it's okay to disagree. And I think we have lost it. Mm. We need a silent majority to stop being so silent because there's a vacuum here and the tiny minority on social media with loud voices seem to be dictating what everybody else does and we're allowing them to do it. And I've noticed big changes over the last couple of months. I think we'll look back in 10 years' time and we'll thank Black Lives Matter because they brought it to a head last year. Mm. All this was undercover before that, and now every, quite a lot of people know about what's happening now. So I think, I think now it's in the public realm. More people are fighting back and pushing back. But isn't there something, there's an innate kind of fear of unpopularity that I think comes with being a human being. And none of us like the idea that someone thinks badly of us. And maybe keeping quiet is just easier. You get an easier life, don't you? And isn't that, that why this happens? It's a good survival strategy. Mm. You know, the, the, we're animals at the end of the day, you know, over tens of hundreds of thousands of years, we've developed traits to help us survive. So cowardice is a trait that keeps you alive sometimes. Sometimes it can kill you. So these are all judgment calls. And we do want to be liked because we're a tribal animal and we have to get along with people in our tribe. Otherwise we'd all die 10,000 years ago. So all this, all this is human nature. And the other side, you know, the intolerant side, are tapping into some of our traits and using it against us. What we need to do is push back against that and say, we can overcome some of these traits. You know, 10,000 years ago, travel warfare was everywhere, but we don't do that now because we have dialogue. Yeah, well, you, you say that, but then, you know, a lot of my job is to report on uh, various things that happen in sort of the, what is known as the culture war, cancel culture, these kind of ideas. And uh, it does feel like the stories are getting more frequent, not less. Yeah. As in, I, I'm, I mean, you sound, in a sense, quite optimistic. I'm very optimistic. Um, but then why is it that it feels as though uh, actually things are getting worse rather than better? I think that's a backlog of problems that are still going to come through. 
So um, I think we have a backlog of people who've been um, slightly brainwashed, you know, companies have gone woke. But I think the beginning of this super tanker is beginning to change course. Okay. And it's going to take, I think it'll probably take about a decade. Well, um, what about education? Because I mean, surely education is going to be the key to this. And, and this is why I'm particularly dismayed. Well, you know, I have good days and bad days. So I, like sometimes I think, sometimes I'm, I'm with you and I think, oh, well, this will all be resolved because I have a faith in humanity, ultimately. But then on other days, I think, actually, maybe we've left it too late. And the reason I say that is because I often speak to teachers. I used to be a teacher and I know a lot of teachers. And they say that this stuff, such as critical race theory, uh, ide- extreme identity politics, the idea that free speech uh, is not necessarily a good thing, and all of this is seeping into schools and teachers and is becoming more, more common, not just in terms of the texts they're invited to teach or not teach, more to the point, um, but, but that c- colleagues are starting to, 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 to raise issues and questions that make them seem like actually... Uh, the, the liberal values that I used to stand for aren't necessarily shared by all of my colleagues here. Now, if that's the case, and if that's happening at, at, at educational level, at primary school level, then what hope is there for the next generation? Because that's where we're, we're creating the next the, the adults of the future. Yeah. Part of why I'm optimistic is our education system is poor. 80%, 18% of kids leave our secondary schools and don't re- are not reading or writing at an acceptable level. How many, sorry? 18%. Really? Yeah. Okay. Uh, down to uh, the Commissioner of England for Education. It was in their report a couple of years ago. Um, so we can't teach kids to read and write. Kids I work with on the streets have all had 11 years of education, and their level of education is extremely poor. So I know that our education system has bigger problems than, than this. Um, Things come in fashion. This is fashionable at the moment, but fashions come and go. Yeah, yeah. Um, the big problem for me, I think, is universities. And the only way we're going to deal with universities is if we look at their funding. And I think only the government can do that. So I don't want, I'm, I don't like banning things. I don't want to ban courses that universities run. But what I want the government to do is, is say, this list of courses, so women's studies and lesbian dance theory studies, you can still run those degrees if you want to, but no student will be able to get a government grant to do it uh, because they have no benefit. But if you're doing chemistry or physics, in fact, we'll reduce the cost of your course because we need people who do physics and chemistry. Our university system treats every degree as equal and they're not equal. Some are a load of rubbish, some are we really need. I actually think doing lesbian dance theory studies would be quite interesting. I mean, is there, is there not a case to be made for education for its own sake and, you know, exploring an interesting topic? Why? That's why I wouldn't ban them. I just don't think the taxpayer should fund them. And when you do get a, a grant, really, the, the government is funding it. We are funding it. Yeah. I think something like... No, 80% never get paid back. But then what about the arts, say? What about, what about something like literature? Because you could argue, couldn't you? Well, you know, you can become an expert in English literature, but that's not going to help you. In a, you're not going to you know, build any buildings out of that. You're not going to heal any wounds. Uh, but there is something to be said about the artistic health of a nation that's actually quite important. I'm a little bit of a philistine when it comes to the, <laughs> okay. the art side of things. I'm probably not the best person to speak to, and I better not go on too much about it because I'll get cancelled for a different reason. Oh, different reason. Yeah. It'll, be my, it'll be my lot that yeah, cancelling you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm anti-art. Yeah. When you come off a council estate yeah. and you've been to a poor school and you're trying to get a job and the kids I'm working with, 
when the government announces today, um, you know, on the budget about how much they're going to put money into museums and the Victoria Albert Museum, I go, what a waste of money. Ah, but you see, that's your experience, isn't it? And, exactly, and, absolutely. You know. So, so I, I'm not saying it shouldn't be done, and I know lots of people will enjoy that. They're called the middle class. But, but the kids <laughs> I'm working with on the streets makes no difference to them whatsoever. So you, you still should have it. So you, you think this is very much a class issue? Yeah. About, I mean, but then you have arguments such as that, that put forward by Roger Scruton and, and the idea that actually uh, when you have a, a thriving artistic culture, which is reflected in the architecture, yep. which is in reflected in you know, works of art on the yeah. street, I mean, and, and, and I mean good works of art, not, not you know, just yep. fr frivolous stuff, um, that it actually can have a positive effect on all classes. It is a democratising thing because it's not just about the middle classes then. It's about absolutely everyone. I mean, there is a case to be made there, surely. There is, but not if you can't read and write. So it's about priorities. Priorities. Not if your dad is in jail and your mum's a heroin addict. Looking at that beautiful building isn't going to sort your life out one bit. So it's all about privatising. I'm not saying we shouldn't do it. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying my two decades career has been looking at real social problems, not which I not what I would call the add-ons. Have you had any luck in terms of um, you know? Resolve or attempting to resolve this issue of education, you describe a failed education system yeah. there. Um, and what can we actually do? And do, is there an appetite within government to seriously uh, grapple with that problem? Because the statistic you quoted me there is actually quite shocking. Yeah. So, are they going to do anything? No, because they're scared of the union. So, scared of teachers' union. Um, nobody. We don't seem to have a politician anymore who wants to fight. It's all about compromise. What I would do is I would set up in every neighbourhood a, a different type of secondary school, call it a technical secondary school. So you go to a normal primary school, up to 11. Yeah. When you get to 11, you and your parent decide where they're going to send you. So these aren't dumping grounds. These are where your parent wants you to go. So you have the normal secondary school, do GCSEs, maybe go to university. That, that's yeah. one path. Or you have a different secondary school, called a technical school, where you will go, you'll still do English and maths, but there'll be lots of other things you can opt into. So there may be trades. So you, know, you might start bricklaying at 13 to understand bricklaying, plumbing, electrician. You might want to be a gamer. There might be a computer section where people can do gaming. You can be trained about how to run a business, do your taxes. Um, you might, there might be sections there about hospitality, how to be a chambermaid, how to work behind a bar, how to do stock control. So when young people leave at 16, 17, and they don't want to go to university, they're employable from day one. Could that not be resolved with just restoring the importance of apprenticeships and that kind of thing? And you know, because and, 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 there has been a move, hasn't they? Hasn't there from successive governments? We have to get everyone into university. Yeah, and actually, for, for a lot of people, I think. Well, for one thing, you can earn a lot more from some jobs through apprenticeships, yeah. but, but, but also people, people have a more natural aptitude for that, and there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So apprentices are fantastic. We need more apprentices. I'm, again, I'm talking about the young people I work with on the streets. So when they're 14, 15, 16, yep. 17, and I'm chatting to them, and they'll, you know, can hardly read and write, and hate school, hated school, and you ask why they hated it. Well, we talked to them for 11 years, they hated every day, but we made them go every day. To, and a one-size-fits-all a one system that wasn't built for them. And they're tortured. And we wonder why they leave at 16, angry and violent and hating society. We tortured them. Where if they could have left with no qualifications at 15, 16, 
but with aspiration and dreams and knowing that I'm not academically gifted, um, I may be even low intelligence, but I now have some skills, that means I can get a job, and it might mean I can buy a house, it might mean I can have a family and pay for them, but at the moment, for 20% of the kids in our schools, they're basically holding centres for them until the spring of their 16th birthday, and then we open the doors and we go, there we go. You're just as unemployable today as you were when you were five when you came into the system, and that's not good enough. Do you think that any of this is relating to discipline or a breakdown of discipline? Absolutely. Not just within schools, but also within families? Maybe not disciplined families. Um, definitely the lack of fathers in the home. That's our... If we could solve this one problem, yeah. if I had a magic wand, that's the one I would wish away, that we had fathers in the home with their children. That would solve most of our social issues. Well, you're already pushing back against the social justice viewpoint, which is that masculinity is essentially toxic, right? So, Absolutely. So surely... No, no such thing as toxic masculinity. There's toxic individuals... Mm-hmm not toxic masculinity. We need more fathers in the home because fathers and mothers bring different things to the raising of their children. Um, you know, a child will come in at five years old, ten years old, cut knee, I fell off my bike. Mum will go, oh, what's gone on? Get the first aid kit, you're okay, we're going to put a bandage on it. And your dad will go, shut up crying and get back out, you're fine. Of course, people would say, well, that's gender stereotyping. Isn't it? Maybe the mother sometimes could, uh, could, could do that as well. Maybe they can. Yeah. Maybe both will do it. But on the, in general, yeah. that's, their, that's their roles because we're predetermined to be like that. Um, and that's when the child then realises, I'm not fragile. You know, I can take a bump. I'm not going to cry. So when someone calls me a name, that's not going to hurt me because I didn't hurt me when I cut my knee. So we need fathers in the home. They bring something that mothers can't bring. We need mothers as well. I'm not saying fathers, but I'm saying they're equal. Yeah. But we need fathers. But then in schools, you have the, the added problem. And as someone who's been a teacher, as I keep saying, um, you know, it, it is harder to discipline yep. kids because they know there are not necessarily consequences, really. All you can really do is, is talk to them in a stern way. I mean, what are you going to do? There's always consequences. It's all about what those consequences are and how you deliver it. Yeah. So have you been to um, Catherine Burble Singh's school? I haven't. Uh, I haven't. And I know about it. I've read a I went, lot about I it. I went a few weeks ago. I knew it was going to be excellent. It was far better than I ever imagined. So, can I just ask you about this? Because from what I've read, so at Catherine Burblesing's Singh School, so it's Michaela School. Yep. So the kids aren't allowed to talk in the corridors. Yep. Everyone's facing forward in the yep. in the classrooms. Uh, if they forget a pen or something like that, yep. they can get a, a detention. detention. Uh, so it's very very strict. Yep. I was even told that in the lunch breaks, they they get set topics to talk about, or that they took. That they, was amazing. Yeah, absolutely so, amazing. So talk about that experience. So I said to Catherine. What do you do when you have a kid here who is dysfunctional? You yeah. Know, who is it? And she went, they conform. She said, they may push back at the beginning, but everybody else is doing as they're told. Because she's not dealing with posh kids here. These are, no, these are, these are inner city kids. Yeah, yeah. There's no selection. The council send her the kids to her school. She has no say who turns up. Yeah. So this is not like we'll pick the best ones. Yeah, yeah. And she's got an ethos in that school. And if, it can, if you can do it in Wembley, you can do it anywhere. And the ethos is, it's all about personal responsibility. It's all about discipline. And it's all about, we want the best for you. Mm. You've only got five years in this school. And but when you leave, you're going to be formidable when you leave this school. And do you think that that kind of approach could be rolled out 
every, I mean, look, you've got to look at the results of the school. It's, it's, yes. it's, it's doing it's very well. Like, it's, that's, that's what I would say. Well, that's incontestable. Yeah. The kids go there from, from difficult backgrounds and they do well yep. and they enjoy it yep. and they are grateful and all of those things. So th- these things are impossible to argue against. And yet there is a real resistance within educational circles to this approach yep. because they will say it's draconian, they'll yep. say it's not people-centred, all the rest of it. Um, what, are the, what are the chances that this can become a more normalised approach? The government has to want it. The government ha- You're not going to get every school like Michaela because there's only one, Catherine. So, but you, you, can, you can raise every other school up to be more like that and that's about the government demanding that. So at the moment, schools are rewarded for how many kids you get with so many GCSEs, grade A's and B's and things like that. In terms of league tables? Yeah, yeah, league tables. So what happens is you turn up at 11 years old and your, your academic achievement is really low. Yeah. Are we going to, in five years, are we going to be able to get you from there to there? And the answer is we doubt it. But if you come in there... We'll spend all our time and money getting these kids yes, to there. Of course, and then there. So we focus on the kids we, we, we're going to get success with so they can increase our league table. So all the kids down here, these are the kids I work with on the streets, then I've forgotten about because they're not going to improve our league table. Yeah. So if we can kick them out, even better. But they're going to add no value. So how we reward schools is wrong. What we need to do with schools is we should assess them when they go to secondary school. And let's say, a scale of one to ten. Yeah. Let's say you're a two. You're quite poor. You're a two, academically. But then when you leave school, you only get you know, one or two GCSEs, but we've raised you to a seven. Yeah. That means we've raised you five steps. Well, that should be worth more than getting a kid who was an eight, and now we've raised him to a nine in yeah. five years. They call this value-added yeah, value within added. schools. And, and that's how we should judge schools more. The discipline is the major reason why the vast majority of schools fail. There is hardly any discipline in the schools. Mm. The teachers, I used to be based in schools as well, I've worked in schools. They think there is, but there absolutely isn't. Well, some teachers that I've spoken to about this feel that the power balance has shifted too much towards the pupils. For instance, uh, and then the unions will confirm this, that there are a lot of problems with false allegations against teachers yep. because pupils know that it just takes an allegation to ha- see that teacher suspended and it can be completely fabricated. That's not to say there aren't sometimes no, abuse, yeah, abuses and things that need to be addressed. And that makes it very difficult, doesn't it? Because yep. uh, you, you need to have a, uh, an environment in which uh, someone who is being abused can come forward. But if they, if, 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 if they know that they can do that, this is likely to be exploited... Uh, by those with a grudge, and that's, yep. that's very difficult. And then once you've reported one teacher, I'll tell you now, every other teacher will leave you alone. Yeah. I'm, I'm not messing with him or her. Yeah. I'll tell them what to do, because look what they did to Mr Jones. Yeah, exactly. They can do what they want, I don't care. It's almost as though there's yeah. a kind of cancel culture within schools yeah. as well, I suppose. There is poor teachers, and I've seen quite a few of them. Yeah. And they seem to be almost impossible to get rid of. We need a system, just like any other business where we can but let go teachers who are not because it's a gift being being a good teacher is a gift and well it's a vocational thing voc- really yeah, exactly but 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 i mean to defend teachers a little bit i would say that it is a much harder job than people think absolutely you know yeah. and, I, and i think yeah. in a sense if if if, the, if teachers had more support it might be an easier job or at least a, a job that they would be more mm. thrilled about uh, no, ab- absolutely. The government need to do more. The government need to take this fight on, but they won't. So we keep hearing about levelling up. Mm. If we want to level up the north and the inner cities, 
two-decade plan all around education, improve the schools. Let's stop having schools like holding centres. Let's, let's get rid of the proofs, the pupil referral units. We should have schools that say, we're, we're, we're never going to give up on a child, no matter how you behave, because we're going to have a section of the school where we put children who won't behave in class. We stop giving up on children, we stop kicking them out, because some of these kids want to be kicked out. And we, we, our education system needs overhauling and we need to tackle the unions. Do you not think, though, that some people are, this sounds terribly pessimistic, but almost beyond redemption, as in some, sometimes there are, there are characters in society who you can't help, who you can't lift no. up, no matter what you do? You no. don't believe that? In my society, I never want to give up on anybody. So what's great about this country is we'll give you a chance after chance after chance after chance after chance and you can mess them all up and you can tell us to f off and you can spit in our face but do you know what then we give you another chance because we never give up on people in this country did you never feel in all your charity work that sometimes someone was just so difficult that you, you all were the like, time yeah exactly that's what i mean did all you not feel time. let's just let, let's leave that one not all the time that you know i want to pull my hair out yeah that it's like, I just want to grab him and <laughs> shake some sense into them. Of course, these are, you know, the people we're working with, are not, some of them are not easy people to work with. But in a compassionate society, we don't write people off. We just, even, even though we may fail with them, yeah. well, that doesn't mean the next agency or person who comes along isn't a better fit that can help them and support and do something with them. Yes. I, ju I just don't want to write people off. Sure. So what's next for the charity? What, are, you, are you persisting with the work that you've done already? Are you expanding at all? Yep. So um, over the last six, eight months, the charity has expanded. Um, now that lockdown's finishing, there's more yeah. kids on the streets, there's more problems on the streets. We're getting funding to work in those areas. Um, we're looking at starting a new employment project. We've had quite a lot of employers approach us over the last couple of months saying, we just can't get anyone to work for us. Yeah. We will now, we're now in a state where if you've got 16, 17 year old who've got criminal records, we'll give them a chance. Yeah. And we're going, this is what I've been waiting for. Yeah. Because some of these kids, you know, at 17, 18, may've got a criminal record, but they're not like that now. Yeah. And, you know, we've been working with them for a couple of years. They'll take this opportunity and we'll be on their back. Yes. We'll make sure they turn up. You can phone our mobile number if they're late or they give you cheek and we'll go speak to them and we'll have a ripper strip off them because <laughs> we want that job to work for them. Um, so we're hoping to expand that in the new year. Chavity's doing really well. Great, fantastic. And then, of course, there's the book and the book yep. is coming out in a month. Uh, yep. Do you have a, a feeling that it might help the discourse, that it might push things along, that it might encourage people to, you know, speak out and defend themselves and stand up for themselves? I hope so, because I think one of the lessons in the book really is how easy it was for me to win. Okay. It really wasn't difficult. Once you'd made that step. Once I decided that, I was fighting yeah. back, within days, online bullies all disappeared because it was like, oh, he, he, he's not a weakling anymore now. He, he's pushing back. Let's go find someone weaker to pick on. So they disappeared. The board collapsed in 18 hours. It, 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 it didn't seem easy at the time. But the whole thing was five weeks. It that, was... that just feels like the lesson we all know from the playground. Yes. That the bullies aren't interested in you if you if you if you if you refuse to be a victim. If you absolutely, they're just not interested. They yeah. they go and find someone yeah. who's going to cry. There's nothing originally in my book. These are these are all lessons you know. You've just forgot you know them. So who is it aimed at? Everybody. It's anybody who's interested in the culture wars. Yeah. Anybody who 
feels himself saying things they know are untrue. People who feel they're doing things that for quiet life, but there's a little voice inside going, no, this doesn't feel right. If you've had any of those feelings, this is the book to read, to give you help and advice and hints about how you can start pushing back in a sensible way. That's not going to get you fired. That's not going to break up your relationship, but how you can be part of the fight back. Yes. I've started using the phrase, be a ninja, not a whinger. <laughs> There's ways you can do things without having to put on a cape and a mask and be Superman. You, you can push back because you have agency. You're not a coward. You, you know, you are a man or a woman. And better than that, you're an English man. You're an English woman. Or you're a British man, a British woman. They're formidable. I mean, it sounds like you're talking about most people, actually, because I think most of us have this thing in our head. We should be saying things that we're not saying. We should, mm. be, we should be more honest with ourselves. Mm. We should be speaking the truth and, and not living in fear. Mm. And do you think, ultimately, we will reach that point where people are more open and more honest and more courageous. I think this is a blip in our history. I think in a decade from now, we'll look back and we'll think, what were they doing? <laughs> I think that the tanker is beginning to turn. Yeah. Um, there's going to be several more years of this and we're going to, we don't know what it is, but something will happen at a tipping point and it'll end faster than we can imagine. And then people will go, I can't believe that used to happen. And we'll go, but you were part of the problem. And they'll go, I would never supported any of that. And we'll have a load of denial about anybody ever supported any of this. Yeah, well, I hope you're right. <laughs> I'm very, very optimistic. Fantastic. Well, Nick Buckley, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. This has been Free Speech Nation, the podcast, with me, Andrew Doyle, and my guest, Nick Buckley. Make sure you check out Nick's forthcoming book. That's called Lessons in Courage, and that's available to pre-order on Amazon right now. And if you enjoyed the episode, please do like and subscribe, tell your friends, and then come back and join us next week where we'll have another fabulous guest. See you then.